Welcome to the shit show of my 20s. My name's Sophia, and I am so glad you're here. I am a 20-something in my early 20s, and I was going through my fair share of shit show moments, and I'm sure there's more shit show moments to come. So much fun. But it's while I was going through these moments, I was realizing I'm probably not the only 20-something who feels this way. So I decided to start this podcast back in 2020, and it's been incredible. And I love interviewing these inspiring people. And I hope that through these stories, you're able to see yourself in these stories. And it would mean the absolute world to me if you would share it with a friend, as well as leave me a review on iTunes. It makes a huge difference. I put so much time and energy into this podcast and it would mean the world to me. So without further ado, let's get started. Today's guest is Jason. I love chatting with him. Jason's start in business was as a rapping monk. In fact, his, it was his inability to sell records that turned him onto online marketing, where Jason made his first sale in 2007 with a $4 ebook. From there, Jason went into product creation mode, publishing dozens of products over the next year. His big break came when he got into webinars. By 2009, Jason started perfecting a webinar formula that could turn him into the all-time top webinar seller and trainer on the planet, Jason's company, Rapid Crush, has been the leading edge of software, info products, Amazon e-commerce, affiliate marketing, and crypto. Jason's mission is to find the best things to help the most customers and then use ethical marketing to connect great people to great solutions. He has sold over 250 million to 150,000 customers in 131 countries. He holds the record for the biggest launch in the internet marketing space of 57 million. In this episode, we go into so many incredible things from what got him into webinars, how he transitioned from being a monk into the online business space, his money mindset process, and so much more. So excited for you guys to hear this episode. Let's get started. So thank you so much, Jason, for joining me today. I'm really looking forward to getting to know you. Love to start. Tell me about your 20s. Feel free to include any shit show moments we can't resonate with. Let's start there. Yeah. So, you know, uh, when I turned almost right before I turned 21 is when I quit drinking, which I think is kind of funny because by the time I became legal age, wasn't for me anymore. But the problem was, is I was having a lot of panic attacks when I started to turn 20. I was anxious all the time. I was depressed. I had a lot of challenges in my childhood. And so right before I turned 21, I got involved. Uh, I've always did music and I got involved with this guy that traveled with some Hare Krishna monks. And he was also the most talented musician I ever met. And by the way, there's my cat, if you could, if you, if anybody's watching. So he got me introduced to this concept and I started doing this meditation and chanting and reading these scriptures and it started giving me relief. Finally, relief from this anxiety that I had and these challenges. And it really made me focus on doing something that I felt was meaningful and purposeful in my life. And so I was like, I'm going to really do the music. I'm going to focus in. I'm going to do it as best as I can, put my heart and soul into the thing. And so I did that, Sophia, from like age 21 to 25. So I mean, my, my, I guess I'm an overachiever because normally what most people would go through in their early 20s, I went through in my teen age years. So I, I was wild and I got it out of my system. And then I became a monk when I was entering into my early 20s. And that really helped me get clarity and focus. It made me want to do something big. So I started doing the music. And fortunately, I wasn't very good at it. <laughs> I, I Not for lack of trying, but what other people could do in an hour would take me 10 hours. 
And that was a hard lesson for me to learn. It took me like five years to learn it. And so I would try all this stuff. And no matter how what I did, I couldn't get things off the ground. Now, this is when people quit buying music about the same exact time. So the timing could, couldn't have been worse. But I, I was never wanting to quit. I was like, what do I got to do next? Uh, what do I got to learn now? What don't I know that I need to know? And that's when I started getting into business, which I was not interested in all at, at the time. But then I started getting into business. I was like, okay, there's a science and there's an art to this. From that, I got into the marketing, which I found even more fascinating fascinating. And I was like, well, until I encountered marketing, I was never as interested in anything in my life as I was about music. And then the marketing became more captivating to me. So when I turned about 25, I uh, transitioned more into the business of the music, less the music, and then more the business, and then more specifically the marketing. And that was exciting. Uh, by the time 2007 rolled around, so I was born in 83. So that would put me at I don't know what that math is. I was like 24 years old. I'd sold my first product online and that was right, right at the end of 2007. And then I got really focused on that. So the next year I did pretty good. The year after that did even better. Uh, and then by the time I closed out my 30s, I was a multimillionaire. I'm sorry, closed out my 20s. I was a multimillionaire. By the time I entered my 30s, I was a multimillionaire. So that's a that's a very short version of, of a decade of my life. <laughs> wow. That's so interesting because you bounced around from two extremes. And I'm wondering because like you said it took five years to learn one lesson, right? Like I feel that's like right. sometimes some lessons like you have to run into enough walls before you really get it. And like what was that moment for you of you're like, this just isn't working. Like I just have to be honest with myself. This isn't working. Like it's time to try something thing new because I feel like it's hard also to like release like you really want it to work yeah you really do but it's I mean it, it just got to the point where there was no progression if anything there was regression so when I started out we would play all these shows it was essentially I had all these guys that were supposed to be there with me when I started I, I, I saved up all this money so I was working at this warehouse this flooring warehouse and I'd save all my money and I, and I spent like twelve thousand dollars between money I had and money I didn't with credit cards to buy all this music equipment I had this other guy that rapped with me because I was a rapper just to make this, the story even more interesting and then I had the, the the dude that turned me on to the Hare Krishnas, he was the producer and he was so talented. But the moment I bought all that equipment, they left. I don't think they came in more than once or twice in total. So I'm all by myself. So I'm out there grinding and hustling, trying to sell CDs and book shows and produce the music myself and all that stuff. Uh, and then I ran, I run into a guy one day who wanted to help me. He went by the name of Midnight. It's a very, very colorful story. There's so many interesting characters in it. And he was helping me. So we would go out and we would do these shows. And at first it was exciting because we would do, we'd, we'd do any show where we get paid. Cause I was like, I gotta, I gotta make some money. I can't do this if money doesn't come in and which became really useful for me later in sales and in business and in marketing. So we would book whatever show paid. And at first it was fun. Like we would do these, these 16 year old girls birthday parties. They, that was the paid the, the best. So it'd be like 30 or 40 people at a party. You would perform for them and you'd, you'd make a couple hundred bucks, which was a lot of money back then. We'd book any gig. So we'd do the intermission at a professional wrestling gig. So they'd have like these, these pro wrestling, regional things that would come through really small organizations that would put 100 or 200 people in. And we'd be the entertainment, you know, so any and every gig we could possibly find a book, we would book. And then what happened, though, was 
we weren't progressing. So I wasn't getting the bigger bookings. I was getting the smaller bookings and I got stuck there. So I was like, this isn't going to work. I got to find a new path. And so we would occasionally get a booking where we would get attached to some talent, some national tour that would come in, but nobody would show up. So you'd get five people you'd play for, three people you'd play for, or even sometimes one person or zero people at these shows. And they didn't pay you anything. They paid you in drink tickets, essentially. And I wasn't drinking because I was a monk back then. So I was like, okay, this isn't working. And no matter how much I put in, I can't put in any more time because I was putting in 12 to 14 hours a day trying to make it work. And that's when you just you learn you just you lose the hunger for it. You just you, there's only so many times when no matter how hard you try, you, you come up short where you start to, to read the writing on the wall where you say, OK, listen, certain of the things that this comes naturally. So I'll give you an example. So feel like I've always been super comfortable in front of an audience speaking or, or performing or doing whatever. That's just natural to me. So in, in some instances, we want to play to our strengths. The weaknesses came from the songwriting. The weaknesses came from the musicality where I, I just didn't I had to work so hard to get that. But in business, the strength of presenting in front of an audience became significant without some of these other weaknesses that I was having in music that didn't exist in the business. So I took to the idea that why don't I play to my strengths more? And I had some strengths in, uh, in music, but I discovered I had more strengths in business and I had an equal passion. So let's combine the passion. So the passion's got to be there and it's got to be strong. But then let's play towards our strengths and let's enhance our strengths instead of trying to just work on all of our weaknesses all the time. And that was a big deal for me. When I finally, when that clicked, I was like, okay, I got it. So I only struggled for like a year in business uh, or a year and a half maybe where I struggled for five years in music and had still I was nowhere better off than where I started essentially uh, whereas in businesses I was starting to pick up momentum and then it, when you hit it's over at that point in time you just it's like a snowball turning into an avalanche mm. and what would you say is like your biggest lesson that you took from being a monk into your business yeah it's a great question so to like follow the they call him a brahmachari uh, where you're an aspiring priest or what they'd call a sannyasi where you're like the the highest level of being a monk but just to be a brahmachari meant you were expected to chant for like two hours a day so i was doing this on my own i didn't go to a temple or anything i was reading the books and i was following the different things like i was a vegetarian i was abstinent didn't gamble and i would chant these 16 rounds a day and it took about six minutes seven minutes to chant around and so if you think about that i was chanting about two hours a day meditating. And that meditation allowed me to really learn A, how to quiet my mind and, and B, like I didn't know any of this at the time. Later, I studied cognitive science and I could understand some of this better. But like you enter this thing called an alpha state. So unfortunately for most of us, we try to think all the time. We're like, I want to solve this problem by thinking my way through it. If you put somebody up to a monitor, like to monitor their brain waves, they're in a beta state there. So thinking at best puts you at the highest level of beta that you can get in. Whereas like if you study these people that are in flow, they're not in a beta state. They're not thinking. They're just channeling more so than thinking. And they're just connecting in ways that are above logic in and of itself. Like thinking is like forcing your way to solve a problem where you're pushing at something. And if you push on something, it pushes back. And so through meditation, I was able to learn how to flow better, you know, entering a flow state, of course, that makes you super productive. But at the same time, being able to be more at one with the task. And that made me very good at getting to the essence of the problem 
and presenting a solution without trying to force it. And so I figured that skill out through meditation and was able to apply it in business. And I thought I think that was one of the most useful things. The other one is connection, because the whole thing about being like a Hare Krishna is it's a very personal religion. It's God is a person and you have a relationship with God. It's very similar to Christianity, where a lot of Eastern philosophy is not that. It's impersonal. It's like you are one with everything, but in, in a way that isn't where there's distinct personalities. And so with Hare Krishna philosophy, I learned how to find connection. There's a, this thing in the Bhagavad Gita where it says, you know, a sage sees the supreme soul in every living being. And there's a picture of it in the book. It's really cool. Where even in the trees and in the dogs, you see Krishna in the heart of all of those beings. And so for me also being able to connect. So in business, it's a it's a people thing. You, you are selling stuff to other people and you are trying to help other people. So learning how to connect to those people in a deeper way than what, they're, what normally exists in life was really profound for me. And I was able to use that to forge deeper connections, empower people better, help people more. And here's what I liked about business at the music lack. Music was selling entertainment. So the solution to somebody's problem. Their problem was, I'm bored. What do I do? I want to be entertained. In business, what we do specifically is we solve problems. And so somebody says, I don't know how to make money. That's a very specific problem. And we can solve that in a very specific way. And so A, connecting with somebody and then B, devising a system or a better solution out there by being able to hyper-focus and get in that alpha state of of meditation when you create, that's my secret weapon. Uh, You're not going to be able to learn that in a book or watch it on a YouTube video. But for years of practicing two hours a day of meditation or more, that's how I earned that. Mm, That's so interesting how many connection points you were able to take away from being a monk and then take it into your business. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And like, did you start off in webinars or how like the progression kind of go for you to what you're doing now? That's a great question. So the music got so bad that I, I went back and started working again just to make ends meet. So I was painting houses and I was trying to then get the business started so I could just get out of painting houses for somebody else, making 12 bucks an hour. It was really a miserable experience. So I was trying to do stuff to make money online. It wasn't working that well, but I discovered that if I could provide a service, at least I could replace my day job with something I had more independence over, something I didn't have to leave the house to do and something I didn't have to answer to somebody else. And so back in 2007, there was a site called Easing Articles. Uh, and Easing Articles was like Google's love child. And it didn't make sense. I still don't understand it to this day. But if you posted an article in Easing Articles, there was a good chance Google would send a lot of traffic to it. It would get indexed in Google search engines for good keywords. People would find these articles and you'd get a lot of traffic. And then at the end of these articles, you could put a little bio box with a link back to your site. So a lot of marketers were using these. This is how data this is. This is so funny. They would send them to these AdSense sites. So they'd read an article, they'd click on the bio at the end to go to a, set, a site that then tried to make money if you clicked on the ads on those sites. Some people were using them to build an email list and some of them were using them to, for review sites to then sell products as an affiliate. Those were the, essentially the makeup of these sites and they needed articles, lots of articles being published consistently to monetize this, this business model to make it work. And so I started writing articles for other people. It was Ghostwriter uh, and write these like 400 word articles. So somebody... On all kinds of topics, like microderm, I don't even remember what, what do you call it now? Microdermabrasion, buckwheat pillows, LCD TVs. I mean, I just would write on all sorts of different weird topics that I'd have to go research real quickly and then write these articles that were keyword dense and also made sense. They were something that people would read and get some sort of value out of. So I started doing that and I, I started making pretty good money. I was like making 20 bucks an hour, then 30 bucks an hour, then 40 bucks an hour, then 50 bucks an hour because I charged by the article. And I, 
the better and quicker I could write those articles, the more money I'd make. So if I said, hey, it's you know six bucks an article and it took me 10 minutes to write it, then at most, you know, I could write six of those an hour, I'd make $36. But if it took me seven minutes to write it, then I'd make more than $36 an hour. So I started finding ways to write articles faster and faster without sacrificing the quality of those articles. And that started making me enough money so I could quit my job and I started working from home, started making some decent money, way more money than I ever made in my life. You know, I averaging about 40 bucks an hour. And also then I didn't know it, but I was developing a, a skill that other people would want to know how to do what I did. So finally, one day after six months of doing this, I got so tired of writing these articles. Oh God. I was like, you know what? I'm going to create a product on how I write articles fast. What's my article writing system? So I, I've, and I tried this before, but I never could do it. So this time, and this is like the defining moment in my career. I said, I'm going to do it in one setting. I'm going to write the product in one setting because then I know it'll get done. So I sat down I had nothing. And when I stood up, I had a product that could sell. That was my attitude. I go, because every other time I've tried to create a product, I've, if I stop halfway through or a quarter way through, it never gets done. And so I finally resolved myself to do that. I sat down and for like two hours straight, I wrote a little ebook. It was like only seven pages long. It was ridiculously short, but it was essentially, hey, if you want to write articles faster, here's what you do. Step one, do this. Step two, do this. Step three, do this. Step four, do this. And you're done. And I said, cool, now I got this product. Now I got to write a sales letter for it. So at the time, there wasn't really social media 2.0. We were still on social media 1.0. And more, most people hung out online were on these forums. So the biggest internet marketing forum was a forum called Warrior Forum. And they had a section in the forum called Warrior Special Offers. And for 20 measly dollars, you could take out an ad where you're, you, you would publish your, your sales pitch as a forum post. And then people could buy it. You put a link to PayPal at the bottom. And if people wanted to, they could buy it and they could come back and they could leave their feedback. So this is like, I know it sounds silly now, but back then that was revolutionary to have actual legitimate social proof from real world people chiming in in real time in terms of, hey, I bought this product and I liked it or I bought this product and it sucked. So I wrote a little ad and I didn't know how to write ads. And again, my attitude was like, well, I'm going to write the ad in one sitting. If I could write the product in one sitting, that why not the ad? And so I wrote the ad and... And I was so scared that I charged only $4 for the product. And I was like, hey, I, I was like, hey, I think I can cut your article writing time down in half. Is it worth four bucks for you to find out? <laughs> if so, go here and buy this product. I mean, there was a little bit more to it than that, but not very much. And so people went, I put this ad out and, and enough people bought it at $4, like an impulse purchase. And then they could go through the product so fast because it was like only six, seven pages. And then they could apply it because it was just pure how to. There was no nothing else to it other and step one, do this, step two, do that. So they'd apply it. And the first time they applied it, they got a good result. So then they would come back and they would post into the, the thread saying, wow, this really worked. Uh, I used to write articles in a half an hour and now I wrote an article in 15 minutes, stuff like that. So it picked up. And so thousands of people started buying this product in the span of like a week. And the smartest thing I ever did, Sophia, was, and I didn't know the technology at the time, like I didn't know how to put these people on an email list like automatically. So on the thank you page, after they bought the product, they said, you know, here's your download. And if I ever update the product, I'll give it to you for free if you put your email in here. We I had like 3000 people opt into my email list and these were all paying customers. And when the smoke cleared, I said, wow, I need to learn other things like this. Because all I did, I didn't teach people how to make money with articles. I didn't even tell them where to post them or how to optimize them. I just said, here's how you write them fast. So I'm like, I started calling these one problem, one solution 
solution, one sitting products. I'm like, where else can I find one very small problem, offer a very step-by-step -step solution to this problem, and then create both the product and the ad in a single setting. And I did that for like the next year. And I had an inbuilt audience now, so I didn't have to just launch it on this forum. I had an email list. And so I would go out and figure out these things people were complaining about, create four, five, seven dollars $10, $12 products that would solve them, sell them to my list, sell them uh, on the forum. I picked up a couple people along the way that says, hey, listen, I got an audience. Can I promote your products and can we split the money? Of course. So we started doing that as well. And that worked out good. So then about a year later, because I kept just trading up. I'm like, okay, now that I know this, how do I, how can I do this? Now that I know this, how can I do that? So I got really good at finding solutions. So I said, how can I communicate them besides writing them? Oh, I know. I'll speak about them. And so I said, let me do a webinar. And the first webinar that I did, this is so funny, Sophia. It was it was brilliant, not because I knew what I was doing. It was brilliant, kind of like, you know, how the, the harder you work, the luckier you get kind of a thing. And so I said to my audience, I want to create this new product on time management for internet marketers. And I want to use this new technology. It's called a webinar. I think it's good. And if you're willing to try this new thing out with me, if you come to this webinar, I'm going to create the product live on the webinar. If you show up, I'll give you the recording for free. If you don't, then I'm going to sell the recording later. It's going to be $37. And so I thought a whole bunch of people were going to come. I was like, oh, this is going to be a free product. If you show up, they not many people came, which was a lesson in and of itself. I was like, okay, whatever. But the people I had live, I said, let me go. So I had a little mind map. That's how I was training back then. And I thought I had an hour, hour and a half of content. Turns out I had four and a half hours of content. And I trained for four and a half hours. And people were over the moon. They loved it. They thought it was amazing. And I had the real testimonials again coming into the chat. And so I screenshotted that. And so when it was done, I emailed my list the next day and I said, hey, listen, you missed it yesterday. This is what happened. It was amazing. I'm going to give you a second chance. Instead of for $37 for the next 48 hours, you could buy it for $27. And when I did that, highest converting product I ever sold at the time. People went nuts and they purchased it. So I said, okay, there's something here. Uh, and I, I loved the webinar and I didn't start by using it as a sales tool. That would come later, as, but I use it as a fulfillment tool. So then I was like, okay, let me try it this way. So the next thing I did was I, I took one of my products that was like a $17 product and it was an eight step process. And I said, I'm going to teach it live. People ask me about more examples. They want to go more in depth on this exact same product. It's the same system. It's the same approach, but now I'm going to teach it live over eight weeks via webinars. So about two hours a week, 16 hours of training essentially. And so I, again, I didn't use a webinar to sell it. I used a webinar to fulfill fill it. So I started with a single off product and I went through like a coaching experience kind of thing. And then the third time, finally, I decided, hey, let me use a webinar to sell something. Uh, and this all happened in about 2008, 2009. And then once I started selling stuff on webinars, that, that was when I noticed the real power of webinars is where you can you can create a what I call a paradigm shift. And that's the goal of every webinar I create. Somebody says, my life will never be the same related to this after they come to a webinar. The brilliance of that is if you can, oftentimes the paradigm shift is somebody says, I'm not able to do blank. And then they can't feel that way ever again. When they're done with the webinar, if you do it right, they should never be able to go and reach for that excuse anymore. So you want to engineer a paradigm shift to empower somebody or unlimit somebody at least. And then you get an opportunity. Now that you know what to do, you could either do it by yourself or you can invest in resources, a community, whatever, spend some money. And now you have other things besides your own efforts and your own time involved in order to do the thing. And that's where the webinars evolved to. And, and then, of course, when that happened, I just focused on how do I get better at that? How do I get better at that? And that, that's, you know, the last uh, 10 years of my life. <laughs> wow. I'm like, right now, are you still doing low ticket items or are you doing high ticket items right now? And do you have a thought process between the two? 
That's a great question. I want to do all of it. Here's my philosophy. Is you can't help people that don't pay you money. It's, it's really hard to at least. Like if you buy somebody else's product, it's less effective for me to help you than if you buy my product. So I don't know what's going to be in their product and you're going to be paying attention to them and you're not going to be paying attention to me. So there's an identity shift that occurs when somebody spends money with you. Fundamentally, the relationship changes. They start to realize you're somebody worth paying money towards. And if they pay you money and they have a great experience, then it sets this uh, foundation down that I'm open to paying you money again because the pattern so far has been I give you money, I get better in return than what I gave. So how often do we want to do that? As often as humanly possible. And so in, from that perspective, whatever you sell, just sell something so somebody can have that experience of paying you money and people pay more attention to the things they pay for. So you'll probably get a better result for that customer. And they, they, they raise an expectation of themselves, which also it's almost like a placebo effect, if nothing else, uh, which I'll take if, if if it's the placebo that makes you better and I had to engineer the placebo to give it to you, I'm game. I'm just trying to make you better. And so I like selling everything with limited resources, which we all have. We kind of got to pick and choose. And so generally it's higher tickets. And there's a lot of reasons why we focus on higher ticket. The number one reason for me is I want to engineer what I feel is the absolute best solution possible. And I don't want to limit it and say, hey, listen, let's just give them something that's cheap. I was joking with a friend the other day. I said, nobody says, I want the very best blank. Let's go to Walmart to get it. Like nobody is in history says, okay, I'm in the market for the top shelf blank. I know. Let's stop by Walmart. We'll probably find it there, right? You settle for Walmart. You don't rise to the occasion when you go to a Walmart. And so I would rather serve the audience where we can find the very best solution for them and then work backwards. Now that we have the most value possible, can we get the price down to something reasonable that is within most people's reach who are serious about changing this, the situation related to this problem? And that's how we look at things now. And because we can put more of our resources into something if we have more margin. If you're selling a $10 product, you can't even advertise the thing because it will cost you more to make the sale by far than any, you wouldn't make any profits. I have over 50 support agents in my company right now. I couldn't pay for one if I didn't have that margin. And so it's important to have the ability to capitalize on certain resources to engineer solutions that are superior than anybody else's are out there. So that's one of the reasons. The other reason is, Sophia, what, what I've discovered that a lot of people won't get and they'll hear this and, and they still won't get it and they'll even argue with me and they'll refuse to believe it so you know it is what it is but i will tell you at the end of the day for most people price is nowhere near the primary concern when they're shopping for a solution it's not even in their top five and i'll, and I'll give you a couple examples so say say you suffered from crippling migraines and you're you're desperate and you've been up at night and now you're losing sleep and that makes you less productive at work you're you got kids and you're not there for your kids you're not present for your kids anymore they're potentially in danger because you're not even present enough to make sure that they're not running across the street. Are you going to see, if you see a migraine solution that you believe has promise, do you really care at the end of the day, whether it's $10, $100 or $1,000, especially if it works for you? Looking back, let's say you bought the solution and it worked. You would not care whether you pay $10, $100 or $1,000 to solve that problem. It's inconsequential. The money is not that important. The hope that the solution you provide gives remedy is what's important. So the risk somebody has to take to spend money with you is serious. But if you can make a proposition where spending $1,000 for you and their mind is the least risky
riskiest thing possible and spending $10 with somebody else is more risky, they'll spend the $1,000 with you before they'll spend the $10 with somebody else. And so price is a thing. There are certain levels when you can get too high in price where you do cut off a majority of the market, but they're usually at much higher levels than most people think. And at the end of the day, people really don't care so much about the price. What they care about is the value in relationship to the price and the risk involved because they have to pay the price up front before they can uh, enjoy the value for the perpetuity of the product. And so with that said, we generally will fall to who can we help the most and what do they need? Let's start there and then work backwards, not how can we make something cheap? Now, a little bit of economics for you. 20% of a market spends 80% of its dollars. It's just the way that it is, just like the sun rises in the east. And so from a pragmatic standpoint, if the goal is to maximize revenue for a business, which it should be because cash flow in business is like oxygen, uh, then the idea here is we can serve one-fifth of the audience that spends four fifths of its dollars, or we can spend four fifths of the audience that's that spent only one fifth of its dollars. And and Sophia, here's here's the ultimate thing when all of this is calculated is is 80% of your competition is focusing on the 80% of the audience that only spends 20% of its dollars. So we can go after a market that's one fifth as big and has four times the competition. Or we can go after a market that's four times as big and has one fifth of the competition or something like that. I don't know if the math worked out exactly like that, but you get my point. A lot of money, little competition over here, tons of competition, little bit of money over there. So no matter the no matter how you analyze it, it makes sense to serve people that are are willing to invest. As I call them, we want to serve the pros, not the hobbyists. That's what we like to serve. So that's a very long answer to a very short question. Yeah, and I like that you mentioned the end of that because it can be easy to try to go for the people who won't invest and try to convince them to invest versus going to the people who are already investing and yep. showing the value to them. That's right. Yeah, and I'm curious, kind of going back because you were like not making money in your 20s and up until you got into this. I'm curious, like, what did you have to do in order to take yourself out of that mindset of like making, like, not really making any money to where you are now? And did you struggle at the beginning of like starting to actually? make more money. Yeah, I'll tell you, this is interesting because a lot of people would assume being a monk means being like broke and penniless and a beggar and, and not being attached to materialism, which you definitely don't want to be attached to materialism, regardless, monk or not, even to this day, I'm telling you, don't get attached to these things because they don't exist forever. They're not yours to begin with. <laughs> However, there is this concept of, of, of abundance and, and spirituality and tapping into that and using things for a higher power, very effective. So the idea here is I always was open to this idea of essentially infinite. There's an infinite potential in you, just like there is in me. The, the universe is infinite. It's insane. If you Google this, I can't remember the number, but there are so many planets out there. There's so many galaxies out there. You can't write the number normally. You got to have an exponential on the number. It's like 10 with 23 zeros that follow it. Something ridiculous like that. The known amount of galaxies that are in this universe and the universe is always expanding. And so there's so much infinite potential and there's, there's so much abundance out there if you get calibrated to that perspective. So when I was switched on spiritually, I started getting calibrated to how big this world is and how much there is of it and what spirit can do if it's properly aligned with it. So I'd always had this attitude of it's there. I just got to figure out how to get some of it, which was helpful. So I didn't have to fight with this issue that a lot of people do, which is, am I worthy enough? Uh, do I deserve it? I didn't have that friction, thankfully. With that said, though, is it was extremely frustrating because I would watch people who I didn't feel were as capable as me 
who weren't as valuable or couldn't serve their audience as well, make lots of money while I slept on the floor. Because I started my business in this little tiny shed. I don't think it was even up to code. I don't think I was legally allowed to, to pay rent there, but you know, slumlords and all that. And I could only fit either a bed or a desk in the living room slash dining room slash bedroom slash office, right? I could only fit either a desk. So I could either sleep on the floor and work at a desk or I could sleep on the bed and work on the floor. So I, I chose to sleep on the floor. My priorities were that the, the desk was more important than the bed. So so there was this absolute, and I was very, I came from a lot of poverty as a child too. So I knew how to get by, but I didn't like it. And I seen so much bad stuff come out of lack of poverty. And I was like, I got to get out of the state of poverty. You know, there's a saying, it's the best thing you can do for the poor is not be one of them. I absolutely believe that. So I did have this motivation, but yeah, it was frustrating and it was struggling for me for many, many years. But I, you know, one thing I have as a salesperson now that a lot of people don't, I'd spend my last dollar on a program. I would put all my money into something and not worry too much about, well, how am I going to make ends meet? How am I going to do this? I would, if the investment made sense, I would make the investment. It just had to make sense. So I was investing in programs to try to better myself. And eventually something like that clicks. To me, the winning is less winning. It's running out of ways to lose. And I was just willing to run out of ways to lose, trying one thing after another until finally you you succeed because you can't fail any further. Now, looking back, what happens is this. And a lot of people discount this. They don't even ever tap into it. You pick up a little bit of skill over here doing this thing. And maybe you create a little bit of product over here. What I mean by that is you don't get the product done, but you write 400 words. Or maybe you design something that that's like going to be a handout and then you never get it done. So it never can be handed out. So you, you do that. So you get a little bit of skill over here, a little bit of product, a little bit of skill over here, a little bit of output, a little bit of skill over here, a little bit of something concrete that has been created that is no longer abstract. And all of these orphan concepts on their own don't amount to much. But after a while, there becomes this collective of all these half finished this and quarter finished that and all these half done skills here and half learned habits over here. They start to gel together regardless of what you do. They automatically start to gel together. And so that happened for me as I was able to accrue all of these half experiences, half habits, half resources that were created. So then it was only a matter of time before they all clicked. So I never looked at it as like, oh, I tried this thing and I failed. I tried that thing and I failed. I tried this thing and I failed. It was frustrating and I hated being poor, but it was like, okay, what what do I need to know now that I didn't know before? What, what have I learned that can be valuable? What can I invest in the next thing that I do? And so I was just, I kept grinding it. Now here's what you underestimate. People overestimate what they can do in a year and they underestimate what they can do in 10. And so for that first year, year and a half, you grind so hard and you get so little. But then once it clicks, it becomes harder not to make money than it does to make money. So once I hit that group, this is how I could go from like 20 to 25 being completely broke essentially. And to go from 25 to 30, getting rich, multiple, multiple millions of dollars rich. Because once you stumble upon something and you're like, man, I'm really bad at this thing. I don't even and understand it that much. And look how much money it's making me. Imagine what life would be like if I actually got good at that. So when I stumbled upon webinars, that's what I said. I said, imagine what life would be like if I actually got good at that. And so then you just focus single purposely on this thing that even though you're not good at it, it's making you a lot of money. And as you get better, it makes you more money. It's called a positive feedback loop. And then pretty soon you get really, really, really good at it. And then it makes you so much money. You can't even believe that. So you, you actually will discount 
what's possible on the high end more than what most people do on the low end just to get started. Like I've made more money in my life than I could ever possibly imagine. I never dreamed that big. But once you hit that breakthrough and you do what I just did, you will set records in your own mind that you wouldn't even think about that can happen in reality. And that's what's really exciting. And that's what's really powerful. And that's what I try to help people with these days. Mm. And I kind of wanted to go deeper into the point you said, like, even if you only had a couple more dollars less, you would like mm. left, you would invest it in something that made sense. That's because right. Because so. it could be so like easy to go into the scarcity of yep. like, I only have like so-and-so left. Why would I invest it all in this program? So I'm kind of curious, how are you able to get to that point? Because I feel like it's very easy to go the opposite way of like, no, this is like the time not to invest. Like this is the time not to do anything. Yeah. And if you study the masses, that's what they do. You know, here's a success lesson is if, if it, the majority of people are doing it, don't do it because, you know, if an average person does it, it gives you an average result. So that's what most people do. I, I understand why they do this. There's this. We are evolutionarily programmed into self-preservation. We are supposed to survive. We are not supposed to thrive. So we, we put all this emphasis biologically and evolutionarily. And even again, we've been natured and nurtured. So we've been nurtured to believe this to be true. You got to protect yourself. You got to be safe at all costs, right? So what happens is we prioritize survival at the expense of our own happiness. So we have a lot of people who live life, but they don't really live life. And so my attitude was always like, hey, I can go get more money. If I got to go paint houses again, I got to go paint houses again. I can always find a way to get more money. So that was my attitude is that there's nothing that's so bad that I can't figure out a way from a financial standpoint to rectify it. Now, again, I was, here's what I had that a lot of people didn't have. You know, I had that spiritual training. First of all, nothing was mine anyway. I come in contact with it for a little bit and then it leaves me after a while, including money. No matter how much money any of us make, it was there before us. Someone else had it. And after we're dead, somebody else is going to have it. So, so having this unattachment to these things that are around me also helped a lot too. So like I didn't have to feel like this was mine to lose. It wasn't mine to begin with. I was in possession of it and I could utilize it, but that's the end of the conversation. And so I didn't have much attachment to these things. And I also understood that the value was in the character development and in the skill set development. That is beautiful. So it's like you can lose your money, you could lose your house, you could lose your car. But if you cultivated an attitude of, of, of trustworthiness, nobody can repossess that. The government can't say you're late on your, your bills. So we're going to repossess your trustworthiness, right? <laughs> or, you know, it's funny because you say, well, how can you be trustworthy and, make, and not be able to pay bills? Well, it's a character trait. So like, let's we can pick another character trait. What if your character trait is you were willing to hang in there longer and care more for your audience? than somebody else was. Well, no matter what circumstances externally you find yourself in, they can't repossess that. The creditor can't sue you in court and, and take ownership over that. So I understood that character development and habit formation was so important. And in order for me to do that, I had to study the people that figured out the things that I wanted to figure out. And so I always looked at it as a bargain. And man, if I don't have to spend 15 years of trial and error because you've already done it, and instead I could spend $1,500 and I could shortcut that 15 years trial and error to like 15 months, that's a bargain to me. That just logically made so much sense to me. So I now have, I have to train people that way. It just happened very naturally for me. And so you, you, you work with clients all the time where you say, listen, if you if you don't spend your money on this thing, then what are you going to do? Would you agree with me? You got to do something than what you've done because whatever you've done, hey, at least it's led you to here, but it ain't serving you in the way you need served right now. So if it's not this, it's got to be something else. And don't you agree with me? It's so funny because this is all logic. You start unpacking this with money. You say, uh, don't you think you have to invest in something? You can't not invest. You can't solve the problem with the same consciousness which created it in the first place. So we got to invest in something. Now, do you suppose 
suppose something's going to come along that ticks all the boxes. Like this thing that's in front of you right now is ticking all the boxes. It's unlikely. And even if it did next week, that's a week of opportunity cost that you've lost. And then it starts to make sense. People get it if you work with them enough. A reasonable person will say, okay, that makes sense. And so you just got to really work it through. Here's the problem, Sophia. A lot of people form these belief patterns because something happens to them once or twice or three times. And then they, they take these belief patterns and they generalize them and then they never examine them again. So, you know, client would say to me, hey, Jason, I tried I tried everything on Facebook and nothing works. I say, you, everything? Really? Every single thing? Like, there's got to be millions of combinations of things you could try. Name me 176 things you've tried. And they're like, uh, usually everything means three things I've discovered. They tried it three different <laughs> ways, one time each. It didn't work automatically immediately when they tried it. And now they've generalized it and says it doesn't work. Or they'll say, well, it works for other people, but it doesn't work for me. Or it works in other industries or it doesn't work for me. And then they just believe that for the rest of their lives. It's tragedy because Sophia, I, I have clients all the time that come up to me and they say, I'm stupid. And they're really smart, capable people. And oftentimes what you've discovered is when they were a child, somebody in a, in a position of authority, like a teacher or a parent or somebody they looked up to, flippantly said to them, you're stupid. And then they believed it. And now here they are 55 years old, still believing that one thing that they heard that one time that was said in just that one way to where they were able to generalize it. So they've created this belief pattern. And that's a, that's a big challenge. And so what happens with these people, especially with money and investing in themselves, they've created these belief patterns and then they've never examined them again. They've never sat down with them and said to themselves, does this still have to be true? What if this was false? What if I had to replace this belief pattern with a different one that was more empowering? What could that belief pattern be? But nobody sits there and really examines these things. And so my goal is to help people examine those things. And so everybody has limitations. And my goal isn't necessarily to figure out something new to improve you. My goal is to remove something that limits you. And naturally, you will tend to improve as a byproduct of removing that limitation. And so all these belief patterns have these limitations. The limitation is, oh my God, if I spend money on this thing, I've wasted my money if it doesn't work. I'll look like a fool. Other people will tell me I told you so. And I literally paid money to fail. That sounds terrible. So instead, I will hold on to this money. <sighs> okay, well, let's break that down, right? Are you truly a failure if you tried this thing and it doesn't work? What's the worst case scenario? If it's not this, then what else is it? And et cetera, et cetera. And there's so many different ways we can look at that from so many different perspectives. It's just amazing how people get locked into one perspective uh, and then they never, ever change from that perspective. And some people will die with that limiting belief for 50, 60, 70 years. So they'll, they'll walk around thinking it's true. It's a thought. It's neither true or false. It's just a thought with a story attached to it. So yeah. Um, yeah, as you could tell, I have a lot to say on the subject. Yeah, I love it because it's interesting. Like you start to think in your head, okay, what happened like twice? I just created a belief pattern about and stopped me from doing whatever thing. And if you were to lose everything today, everything's mm -hmm. gone, all your content, everything you've done, all your programs, what would you do to restart? What would your restart look like? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. So first thing is I would want to get my finances in order. Because uh, until you get your money in order, it's hard to think about anything else. And so I would find a high quality product that I could sell as a salesperson and get a big commission on. See, this is the brilliance of having these thought patterns and these belief patterns is I, I know I could sell a $10,000 product because A, I've done it before and B, I'm not limited. A lot of people will be like, well, I've never paid $10,000 for anything. So how could I ask somebody else to? Well, I was like, gee, like not every jet salesman owns a jet, you know, <laughs> most of them don't. So I would like if, if we had a product that I could sell for $10,000. First of all, it has to be super high quality uh, for ethics, of course. 
and morals, of course. I only want to sell the best. But also pragmatically speaking, it's infinitely easier to sell a superior product than it is to sell an inferior product. So it just practically makes sense. So if I could find a product that was an absolute deal for the right target audience, and it was $10,000, and I could make, say, a 15% commission selling the thing, I'd make $1,500 every time I made a sell of that thing. And if I, I would set a goal, I'd say, okay, listen, if I want to make, you know, if I, if I, if I sold one of those a day, five days a week, right? That's like, I don't know what that is. That's like uh, $7,500, something like that. If only selling one a day for a week. So I could make 15, 30,000, maybe even more money in a single month selling a product like that. So I would try to find an organization that would give me leads. And I would try to sell $10,000 products with the goal of selling one a day that I could make $1,500 on. And I could be making within 30 to 45 days, the equivalent of a quarter million dollars a year in salary, if not more. And that's where I would start. I would not end there because to me, it's, and this is just my values is I'm, I'm, I want to help as many people as possible. So doing it one-to-one is a highly inefficient model for contribution and impact. So I would take that to get my finances in order. And then from that, I would start to switch from sales to marketing. And then I would be able to create and find and serve audiences that are being underserved to where if I could tap into that audience, I could sell millions as as opposed to selling them onesies, twosies at a time. And I would create my own products instead of somebody selling somebody else's products because then I could design them exactly how I wanted to and, you know, make the bets that I would make as opposed to working for somebody else's dream. I'd create my own dream to work for. But that's what I would do. A lot of people wouldn't do that. The, the biggest challenge with them is not only is it the high ticket limitations, but the fear of rejection, right? It's like, oh my God, what if I say something to somebody and they tell me no? Well, that's life. You're going to get, for every yes you get, you're probably going to need 20 to 30 no's in order to get it. So you could either get mad at it or you could accept it and figure out a way to, to deal with it, not have to attach somebody else's external no with your internal worth. Uh, and I, and again, because I've, I've worked on those things already throughout the years, I don't have that friction, that limitation. So I could start all over again. And because I have those attributes and I have those those habits that I've already formed, I could get back into order very quickly. In a lot of ways, it's like it's almost, it almost sounds like a dream. <laughs> it sounds good to me because I have to get rid of all this crap that I somehow accumulate. We're just amazing accumulators of things that we mostly don't need that end up owning us that, instead of us owning them. So maybe it'd be a nice, fresh start. I, again, this is me. I'd find the, the upside of whatever situation I was in, if it's just a little crack in the door, I'd figure out how to leverage that tiny crack to, to fling that door open and get through to the next room. Yeah, I like that because that's a really good way to get started. Go into high ticket space, go sell products on the behalf of someone else, learn from that, take the money, put it elsewhere. It's a lot easier going that route versus trying to go the route of, you know, another way. And I have a final question for you. If you were to go back in time and talk to your 20-year-old self, what would you want to tell him? Or if you want to tell him nothing at all, that's an option as well. Ooh, this is good. Yeah. Uh, I would tell him to do therapy sooner. <laughs> you know, the reason why nobody comes becomes a monk, Sophia, because they say, man, life is really good. It's like a 7 out of 10, 8 out of 10. Let me see if I can get it to a 9 out of 10. Almost everybody comes from despair. They said, you know, it's like life is so bad, I have to turn to God because I can't survive on my own. And so all the childhood trauma I had growing up, you know, I'll tell you the quick version of this story is like when I was about eight years old, I fell out of a tree and I still have the scar on my hand today, ripped my uh, hand open. And it was like every time my heart beat, there was like a rope of blood that would shoot out. It was serious. It was bad. And it was on a Sunday. And here's why I know it was on a Sunday, because I show it to my dad and he says, you can't get hurt on a Sunday because we can't afford to go to the emergency room. And, and I'm thinking in my head, I'm like, there's no option here. It's like, we can't wait till tomorrow, but I'm a young eight-year-old 
child. And this is a traumatic event for me. And that very day, I linked the thing of, say, if, if I ever have kids, and I have kids now, I will never put them in a position to where if there's something serious that needs to be done, we won't even talk about whether we should do it or not and even think about the money. So essentially, at eight years old, a traumatic experience had set me up to become rich later on in my life. Unfortunately, when I got rich, what, what I didn't calculate is it doesn't heal the trauma. There's no amount of external success that will heal internal trauma. So it wasn't until I was in my mid-30s, I ended up meeting a therapist on a lark for a business thing. This is how my life was. Uh, and he scanned my brain and he told me I had PTSD and he told me to start doing EMDR therapy. And I started doing EMDR therapy and I, I went through and like, I'll never forget this day. So I'm sitting in his office and before I even get the brain scan and before you do all this other stuff, you do like an intake form. And it says, you know, list all the traumatic things that have happened to you as a child. And it says, flip the page over if you run out of room. So I write it all out and I flip the page over and I write even more. And I, and I learned at that point in time to like turn off the emotion associated to the event. So it was almost like a weather report for me. Like it wasn't a big deal. And that made me think that I had overcome this. No, I had just learned how to turn off emotion and suppress emotion on this thing. And so I thought because I was successful and because I had achieved all this stuff that I was okay. And he comes in the room and he says, hey, he says, it's, it's, you had a really tough childhood, didn't you? And I said, no, not really. And then he looks at me in a very sobering moment. He says, Jason, I've done thousands of these. When I say you've had a tough childhood, you've had a tough childhood. And I go, oh. And then he, and he pulls out the scan and he says, we call this the, the trauma triangle here. This is where your brain's lit up. He goes, this is a guy who just came back from Afghanistan. Here's what his looks like. It's the exact same thing. You have post-traumatic stress disorder. And I was like, damn. And so he told me to take EMDR therapy, which I did. And by the next week I was doing that and I was processing all these traumas, many of them which have, you know, the thing about trauma, Sophia, is most memories, they change over time. So if you if you take a hundred people and you have a witness event and then they report it and like record it, say, okay, okay, you did this and you said this and you did that. And you come back to them a year later and you say, hey, recall that, that memory. They'll give you a completely different story. There'll be more stuff that's different than it is the same. It's crazy. The only memories that tend not to change are traumatic ones. They get frozen. So you're not, you're not 35, you're five years old again in your mind, even though you're 35 when these events happen or when you recall them and then you either suppress them and shut them off, which is not good, or you you try to find ways to work with them, but you don't heal them. So they, they always limit you. So I would have gotten therapy in my early 20s way sooner because then I would have been able to heal from some of these traumas and that were limiters to me that weren't allowing me to grow in certain areas. And I would have been so much more effective at communication with others. And I would have been so much more capable of having a deeper connection with others and having even more love. But you know what? My conditions of my life that's how they played out. So I don't have any regret that I didn't do it sooner. It's like I chose what I could chose at the time, given the conditions of my life and what I knew. And that was it. So I could only do what I knew. And so I accept that. But yeah, if I had a time machine, Sophia, to, 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 I and mean, we're getting deep here, right? I go back and I'd work through those traumas a lot sooner. Yeah. So many good points you brought up there in terms of like, no matter how much success you have, it's not going to diminish your trauma. It's not going to make it like disappear. Like it's always going to be there, which I love that you brought light to that and working on it versus trying to suppress it, which is so easy just to like continue to suppress it. And I loved interviewing you today. Oh, thank you. Uh, it was a great interview. I appreciate it. Awesome. And where can we connect with you? Where can we find you? Yeah. So the best thing I could help anybody in business is with webinars. And I got a little framework. Uh, I 
I could fit it on a single page. Uh, so if anybody wants to download that and have me walk through the, the framework with them, it's it's at 250webinar.com. Call it 250 because it's a quarter billion dollars in sales that that framework has produced for me and for the people I've trained. So I like the model because I think even if you don't do webinars, the communication structure of it is designed to help somebody who's limited in a certain way unlimit themselves. So 250webinar.com, if you want to check that out, that's where you go. Perfect. Thank you guys so much for listening. I'd love if you can leave me a review on iTunes. Please feel free to share it with any friends you think the story would resonate with. I hope you guys have a great rest of your day.